The Acrest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Acrest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the podcast, do make sure to hit the subscribe button. In this episode, we're delving into the world of blockchain, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mauricio Magaldi of 11FS, who is, despite his own modesty, uh, a blockchain expert. We chat after, he forgives me for butchering his name, we do chat about blockchain, some of the very interesting use cases that he's seen uh, at the moment. We also chat about the potential for the regulation of blockchain-related financial services and how regulators might think differently about that uh, to be more innovative and effective. We also chat about DeFi or distributed finance. We chat about TradFi, traditional finance, and what it is that those firms should be thinking about as they pick up the phone to a firm like 11FS or Mauricio Works. They uh, try and guide people and firms through adoption of these types of technologies. He does end with a rather dire warning that if you're a financial services company and not thinking or engaging or working on crypto and blockchain related matters, you won't exist in five to 10 years. So with that in mind, let's get on with the podcast. The Acrest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Equest podcast with me, Danny Lawler. I'm delighted on this episode to be joined by Mauricio Magda- Magaladi. Have I got that right, Mauricio? Oh, my God, I can't start the podcast. and not get- <laughs> Magaldi. Magaldi. Oh, I apologize profusely. Now, Mauricio, you're based in San Paolo at the moment in Brazil. That's correct. But it's early in the morning. Well, it's 9 a.m., so it's a, it's a mellow, mellow time to chat about everything blockchain uh good stuff um because you do uh you do work for 11fs uh which i is are they based in london or is that just one of their centers yeah they're based in london it's a, it's a uk-based company uh, they're global they they have clients all over the place but uh headquartered in in london i do want to i do want to chat about 11fs and i mostly want to ch- chat about blockchain because a little birdie told me that you are are very clever, a very, very clever little boy when it comes to the blockchain world. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm super curious about it. I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, um, but I've been studying the space for uh, quite some time now. I, first time I ran into anything related was the Bitcoin paper back in 2014. Um, I thought it was beautifully written. I wanted to understand more. But then 2014 was a time where I was working at a bank. And back then, Bitcoin uh, wasn't seen as a desirable asset to be had. So we couldn't actually hold any of that. Uh, and that went long. I mean, that, that culture in banks uh, went on until, I think, 2019. So uh, I actually started working directly with blockchain back in 2016-17 when I uh, had the opportunity to lead the IBM blockchain services in Latin America. Uh, So we developed um, a lot of enterprise projects. Uh, That was the focus of IBM at the time, Uh, mostly using the Hyperledger Fabric protocol, which is uh, one of the first uh, blockchain protocols that were uh, created and developed to be used by corporations. Um, so it's not uh, of public record. It's a, it's a private permission type of protocol. 
but I always kept my eyes on the broader crypto space, uh, continuously studying, understanding what were the trends, what, what technology looked like, and what were the use cases. I'm a real sucker yeah. for use cases. I think they portray better than anything else, better than reading anything, seeing uh, that piece of technology in action, solving real world problems is I think the beauty of it. And that's why I just keep studying. Um, and when I left IBM um, in 2019, I did want to continue to be in touch with uh, the blockchain community. Brazil has uh, a number of great, great people uh, involved in digital assets, involved in, in the technology aspect, more recently in tokenization. And I just wanted to be in touch with uh, all of these folks and I started looking for like educational resources that I could consume while in, in, in transit. In Sao Paulo, we're famous uh, for the traffic. Uh, there's a lot of- It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you've ever been to Sao Paulo and you haven't been stuck in traffic, have you really been to Sao Paulo, I'd say? Um, so yeah, uh, and podcast is a format that I love. And I you know browsed around for a podcast that would be um, like educational in terms of explaining to me, you know, what, you know, use cases were being tackled and I couldn't find any in, in Portuguese. And the ones that I found in English were, uh, podcasts that were, um, sponsored or owned by technology corporations. And I felt that it would be a little bit too biased for my yeah. education. So, um, I hmm. went on into a, um, to do a panel in an event and at the end of the panel, they asked me to actually uh, join a podcast recording. And I felt that, well, this seems simple. Uh, I've been doing, um, you know, I have, I have a band for over 25 years. We've been in studio for, you know, a good chunk of that. And I know my way around audio. And I said, you know what, this might be easier to do than what I thought. I'm already studying the subject. Why not, you know, if I couldn't find any sources from what I wanted, why not put together my own thing? Right. So I just jumped in on the opportunity. I found this one app uh, that does the recording, uh, the sound bites, the editing, um, the publishing, and it's on your cell phone. So I started off recording from the mic on my cell phone uh, in my car at 7 a.m. in the morning during the weekends because the car had a better um, acoustics. Uh, than what I could get anywhere in my house. Uh, and then it just picked up and I've done, um, you know, every weekend since December, 2019, uh, some form of digest. It started off in Portuguese and after a year uh, of getting people asking me to do that in English. So I started doing that in English as well. Yeah. So I do uh, two episodes every weekend. One is in Portuguese. The other one is in English. The topics are the same. I just, record them like one after the other and and off they go but one thing that i think is that i think this the most important aspect of this community is that if you're willing to learn in public the community will reward you and the way that the community has given back to me is that i've now had um 70 69 70 uh, interviews i call them the block talks and I brought people from all over the world and they are willing to, you know, spend 30, 45, one hour uh, with me talking about what they're doing. And that's awesome. And yeah. I, I, I super, I'm super thankful. And the amount of things that I get from doing the podcast is 
in no measure comparable to things that I can offer through the podcast. So I'm super thankful for that. Uh, give us the name of your podcast, Marcio. Yeah, name dropping. So I'm going to plug this. Uh, it's it's uh, the Block Drops podcast, and you can find it on Spotify, Anchor, um, CastBox, Apple, Google, so all of the major yeah. platforms. It's and, good. Um, it's um, a nice kind of a digestible update on, I know this week's was on the Cavalier yeah. in, in America with their NFTs for Locker Room. Yeah. Nintendo verse and, and this kind of stuff. So it's it's pretty yeah. well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, your background, Mercy. Um, you, you mentioned that when you, you started to get interested around 2014, you were in, in banking. Are you a kind of an engineer software techie kind of guy? Or are you are you are you worse than that? Well, I I'm a trained engineer. Um, in Brazil, we have this uh, career in engineering called production engineering, which is very like industrial engineering per se. Uh, it's a good chunk of like business management plus engineering on the side. So it's a, a good mix of skills. But I've never been an engineer, like practicing engineer. So I, you know, all the engineers out there, I'm sorry, I don't really represent the category. Um, but I've, uh, since my first job out of school, I was in some form related with financial services. I was a COBOL developer early on. Um, then I became a project manager. Then I became a program manager as I was moving towards uh, different banks and different companies. And then finally, around uh, 2005, I guess, or six, um, I was offered uh, a job as a, like a transformation program manager at a very large uh, U.S. bank right on the cusp before the crisis. So we had a big project, uh, transformation project in finance, a bunch of like, like data acquisition, cleanup, data quality, data governance, all that good like chief data officer type uh, work. Um, then the crisis hit. <laughs> it was a very interesting period, scary one, don't recommend it. Um, but yeah, uh, and yeah. then I spent most of my time doing like big transformational work for international banks uh, here in Brazil. Uh, had a good exposure to the rest of the region, like Mexico, Argentina, Uruguay, um, Florida, if you will, uh, also. So yeah, uh, good rundown on, on banking in multiple sectors, so commercial banking, uh, private banking, uh, retail, uh, wealth management. So there's, uh, I had a good, uh, like, very wide uh, exposure to uh, the business side of things while doing transformational work uh, for multiple of these companies. So yeah, very fortunate to have been exposed to this um, yeah. in, in throughout my career. And, and, and then it came to the point where that skill set and experience merged with the curiosity uh, and, and the, the things that I do with blockchain and crypto kind of merged together into this weird concoction that I, I now uh, am able to use, right? And did it become, Mercia, that as you, you know, you worked on transformational projects within financial services institutions and you happened to know and learn more about blockchain, that blockchain became a tool that you could use in those transformations? Well, it's, it's, it's still an emerging industry, right? I think that Web3, crypto, metaverse, all these buzzwords that we're seeing now hitting mainstream media, um, these are, you know, these have been cooking for five years now. Right. So I think it, it's approaching mainstream. And I think one of the critical aspects of 
handling this novelty is understanding that they go beyond the hype, right? They have to be tackled for what they are. These are infrastructure technologies. And the same way you don't, you know, fool around with your telecom infrastructure, you shouldn't be fooling around with your data infrastructure, which is exactly what, block, what blockchains are, right? So I think there's a, a degree of seriousness that the hype sort of subtracts from the conversations. But I feel that little by little, as we speak with, with the market, we're seeing more robust and like rational uh, approaches to the use of these uh, new technologies rather than just um, speculation on the price of the underlying native asset of a given blockchain. So I think that yeah. this is a more mature conversation. It's not widespread yet, I think. I think uh, the interest is, is high, but I think the adoption uh, is still lagging exactly because I think people get tied up on the hype instead of uh, tackling this for what they are. So yeah. um, and I'm here to, to help. Yeah. Uh, what about use cases, uh, Mauricio? Because as you mentioned earlier on, you know, one thing reading, but but to, to, to walk through an actual use case can be a really powerful learning tool. A lot of us are trying to learn our way through blockchain and understand better how what, it, what the possibilities are. Have you got any good use cases you can throw in our direction? So I think blockchains in general, they, they sort of inaugurate a few of uh, like new primitives for, for the industries, right? One is it changes the way ownership is, uh, is performed because then it's uh, the record on the blockchain is distributed. Uh, it's accessible to whoever has the access to, to see it. And then you can digitally prove an ownership in ways that were impossible before. So on a blockchain, you can't do copy paste. So you can't multiply the digital asset um, you know, as you will because it's, it's not how this thing works. So I think that sole primitive opens up, you know, an avenue of different use cases. In the enterprise world, it is very, uh, I, I call it a classic use case for blockchain, which is traceability. Traceability of any kind. You can trace from a pack of broccoli to, you know, a, a tray of, um, you know, tomahawk steaks to a container, to an airplane, to airplane parts, and make sense of the logistics of everything that's involved and the financial counterpart of those assets as they go you know, about their journeys throughout the world. So it also helps bridge a number of industries and facilitate what uh, we call these uh, sort of self-liquidating assets. If you have that on chain, then the financial counterpart is easily resolved within the blockchain itself. So we're seeing a lot of efficiencies being captured by the enterprise world in that regard, but that is just one type of use case, right? When we reach out further into say, what we call the public blockchains, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, uh, Avalanche, Cosmos, etc., what we're seeing is that we're financializing every relationship and that gets reported in a public ledger that everyone can see. So. The degree of transparency, and on the other hand, the degree of privacy that gets uh, thrown out uh, is also uh, something that we're learning how to manage, right, in this new environment. And, and, and in so that practical sense, terms, sorry, in practical terms, Mauricio, when you think about 
supply chain uh, blockchain for, let's say it's for transparency purposes, especially. So you, you want to know that your clothes have been made by people who are in decent working conditions or that your food has come from sources that are safe and sound. Uh, That's correct. So the, the, the concept of transparency in the use of blockchain is that your supply chain can see the data related to these events as they happen. So decisions can be made uh, in a much shorter time period because as the events get recorded on the blockchain by the participants of that supply chain, everyone that has a part to play down the line can prepare themselves to do so. So it's not like you're getting a truck full of, um, full of frozen goods that are now melted because there was a problem with the temperature of the truck. If that uh, thermometer is attached to a sensor that gets into the blockchain and it records a temperature that's higher than the accepted one, that truck will never make it to your dock because then in terms of the logistics, the data is now available and the a bot or even the, oper the logistics operator can just say, uh, call the, the, the truck driver and say, hey, uh, your load is compromised. Um, just return to the, uh, to the warehouse. We're going to send another truck. And at the same time, the person who's expecting the truck on the dock knows that the truck's not going to arrive at the, the given time and that a new truck is going to be sent with uh, you know, proper temperature. So all of these efficiencies are now transparent, meaning everyone that's involved in that process can see what, you know, what's happening in near real time and make educated decisions, informed decisions as to what has to be done to capture those efficiencies as the processes happen. So this unlocks a wealth of efficiencies in industries that are mostly written with paperwork. So when you digitize the whole paper trail of uh, processes like this, you get a timeliness in decision-making that wasn't possible before. Now forgive my complete uh, ignorance here, Mauricio, but I'm assuming, so if I, let me see, somebody's selling me a, a bale of organic cotton or, you know, proper, um, you know, traceable coffee beans or something like that. The transaction where the, the person who I've bought it from, how they acquired it, assuming it's not the, the farmer, that's recorded in the blockchain as well. So I can see, well, you got that from there. And I know that that source is organic cotton, or I know that that source is coffee beans that are sustainably grown. Uh, is that how it works? It, that each link of the chain adds their piece to how they acquired what they got so that you could mm -hmm. trace it back to the farm. So this, this, this is another use case, which is similar to traceability, but not quite so. This is provenance, right? Provenance means that I can see on a distributed ledger uh, the information of where the goods that I'm buying came from, what process was performed with that, and which, which is the confirmation of the origin. So it's like if you buy, say, a fancy bottle of wine from um, a winery in France, for instance. Well, if you're buying this from a distributor, how do you know that the wine that's in there is the wine that you're buying the bottle for, right? So there is a way for everyone to record what happens with the goods that when the buyer goes and checks, say there's a QR code and I check where that bottle came from. If it's not coming from the proper origin that I'm used to buying, that I can just not buy that. But if it is coming from the winery that I'm um, very interested uh, about, then I can even buy it for a premium because I know exactly with the proven data set where it came from. That's why... You say this is a provenance use case. 
And so when you think about financial services, Mercio, and use cases there, what are the ones that you've seen or, or one that you've seen quite recently you think, you know, this is this is a real advancement of where we've been? In financial services, I think the, the most disrupted thing we're seeing right now is what we call DeFi, which is decentralized finance, which is uh, in, in its first uh, instance is mimicking financial products that we have from banks, but doing that in a decentralized infrastructure. So you don't have to go to a bank to you know, take a loan. You can go to a DeFi protocol and put in your cryptocurrencies as a collateral and then borrow other types of cryptocurrencies to do whatever the business you want to do. So it's very interesting because now we have this immense infrastructure that the banks have, say, to provide a loan that can now be performed with, you know, just, you know, a piece of code that's running on top of a blockchain, which is the, what we call the smart contracts, right? So smart contracts are programmable pieces of code that you can put on top of a blockchain and it's going to manage the assets, the digital assets that are running on that blockchain to specific uh, processes. So in the DeFi, you can um, lend your, your money. So you provide liquidity to, this, uh, to these types of DeFi protocols. And whoever wants to borrow that can go to the other end of the protocol and say, I want to borrow cryptocurrencies from your protocol to do something else. And we're seeing uh, even derivatives now emerge, multiple dif uh, different types of derivatives, um, types of insurance that would insure uh, some of these um, new financial products within the blockchain. So there's the DeFi insurance as well. So there's a, a wealth of innovation being um, created in the DeFi space because now it's just writing the code, managing a few of the characteristics of that uh, product within the blockchain. And you can offer for a much better rate of return for your users than what the bank would do because they're less intermediaries. There's less mm -hmm. people working on it. And you can just, you know, have at, at some points, you can just have your day-to-day -day savings being provided by a, an internet protocol, such as a DeFi protocol sorts, um, with almost no human interference. That's why it's becoming really common to say uh, that crypto is enabling um, a passive income, because if you have some capital in crypto, you can provide liquidity to these protocols and get an annual return in crypto uh, to back that up. With security in the meantime. Um, well, more, more sure than that, you, you can also buy insurance on top of that to secure that if there's any problem with the DeFi protocol, you won't lose uh, all of your gains, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess you get asked all the time, Mauricio, about um, you know, the pace of adoption, the pace of change. And I feel this might be uh, leading us into 11FS. Um, but what, what's your sense for the pace of change and adoption and how that's likely to, to play out over the, the next few years? I think... I mean, you'll hear people say this a lot in cryptos. We're early, we're early. Enter now, we're early. And I, I feel we're early. I think that for some spaces within the industry, we are approaching like 94, 95 as compared with the previous wave of the internet. 
But I think what's happening is because there's a an in-source of venture capital in this industry. Last year alone, I think it was close to $34 billion uh, were invested from uh, venture capital in the, in the industry. What we're going to see is a, a number of um, business experimenting with potential new business models. That doesn't mean that they're all going to be good. That doesn't mean that all of them are going to succeed or be sustainable. But the degree of experimentation that I'm seeing, and because most of these things are open source, is, is like I've never seen before. I mean, the, the amount of things that are being invented uh, every week, you know, I run the podcast and I, I, I choose like the top three pieces of news to comment on. It's increasingly hard to choose just three of them um, because there's so much innovation, like partnerships. Um, we're, we're starting to see the emergence of the DAOs, DAO. DAOs are the decentralized autonomous organizations. These are new forms of corporations that are emerging in the space. We don't know how they are going to, um, to be sustainable. It's super early and it's all experimenting. So the beauty of everything is that the amount of innovation is probably unheard of, but we don't have enough adoption yet. So there's an imbalance between what gets created and how much of that gets adopted. So we are that early in the industry. And when I say adoption, it's not the like 100 million people on the internet that are doing this because they're early, early adopters. Adoption means we're on, we need to onboard the next billion people into this industry. How do we do that with the current shortcomings? How do we do that with the current lack of you know, regulatory framework. How do we do that when the UX is terrible, right? So I think, and, and I wrote this on a, on a Cointelegraph article recently, there's three things that I think prevent massive adoption in Web3. One is the UX, right? If, if you think about the UX as not only the websites or the screens, but the overall experience, it's, it's dreadful. Right? You have to have wallets. Sometimes you have to have more than one wallet. Um, you have to differentiate between what is a hard, uh, a hot wallet and a cold wallet. The risks of being your own bank in terms of security, it's, it's not conducive. If you're not really curious, there's very little incentive for you to onboard this new industry. So I think this is one massive hurdle for, for increased adoption. Um, that doesn't... Um, put any strain on innovation. That's that's the, the beauty of these things. People continue to innovate, but the adoption will, will soar when we fix the UX. And the second thing is, um, I, I call it regulatory integration. I don't think that regulation express what I feel would be the unlock for adoption. I, I, I call it regulatory integration because this technology now allows regulators to actually write the code that they want the market to follow. It's not like I'm writing the code on a piece of paper and if you don't follow that, I will then maybe find out and maybe I'll go after you. It's now I can write the law into code that get processed and run on top of the blockchain. That's exactly what Bitcoin did. The monetary policy is written on the code and it's immutable. So the beauty of this is that once regulators realize that they have this huge power in their hands now, they can start to participate in enabling regulated innovation. 
And in my mind, the first jurisdiction that does it well will attract an amount of resources that is going to create a new geopolitical battleground. So I'm hoping that a regulator has this epiphany that says, wow, I'm going to write my own software development kit for this industry that I regulate. And if you want to be in crypto and regulate it, you, you, you can use this SDK to actually write your own applications and be in line with the regulator um, in all aspects. So I think this creates not only this like innovation opportunity, but think about the regulators, right? Now they are on chain, they're preventing bad things from happening and they can monitor things real time instead of having to wait 45 days to see what transactions were you know, skewed or off the mark. I think so, there's a whole podcast in that ratio. I love it. But I know, I know. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I'm just saying yeah. that this is this is this has to be in someone's uh, mind right now because it's a unique opportunity that only blockchains can give the regulators. And the third thing that I think will unlock massive adoption, um, I think, is a mix between uh, information and regulation because I don't think the education piece uh, at all. In, in most of the world is we don't have digital literacy, we don't have financial literacy and blockchain merges these two. Uh, and we need to have that degree of literacy if we want the world to adopt um, these new um, pieces of technology in their day-to-day, -day, like massively adopt, right? Otherwise it's just gonna be, be niche. And one thing that I would love this new industry to prevent is the continuation of, or exacerbation of the socioeconomic gap. Uh, I think we need to be more inclusive. Um, and I think that the crypto needs to be for everybody. So there's a good chunk of the mission of the Web3 ethos, which is to make this more inclusive for all. And we have yet to reach that point. So I, I don't know how we're uh, going to solve this, but it's a massive hurdle we have to overcome. Yeah, and I know, um, Mauricio. Obviously, you're with Eleven FS, and one of your one of your tasks is to assist TradFi in not being TradFi or being being um, you know transforming in the way that that's going to work for them. I just wondered when when TradFi firms approach somebody like Eleven FS, what is their what is their primary motivation to to pick up that phone call? Is it fear or is it curiosity or is it um, something in between. Okay, so I think extremes help to exemplify and what I'm going to say now uh, has no resemblance to any of the client's interactions that I'm having. But I think that if you are a financial services company and you're not doing anything towards crypto or blockchain, there's a big chance that you're not going to exist in between five to 10 years. Wow. So this is an extreme uh, opinion, but I think and the good part is most of these serious um, financial services companies are exploring things, right? Because not only they see this as, again, an infrastructure, a, fin a new financial infrastructure that is here already, we just don't know what to do with it 100%, but there is a very um, keen section of their clients that are asking about it. If you, you, you can have, you can take a look at any like headlines of, you know, 2021, most banks had uh, headlines saying, yeah, we we're, we're looking into this because there's client demand. And, and this is one of the most beautiful things about blockchain in general is that it works based on incentives from the like base protocol, meaning the very 
like raw technology where you have validators, miners, etc., that are ingrained into the very uh, infrastructure or validating each transaction on the blockchain through these incentives to the application layer where, well, we want to see what's in it for us, which is an interest at first, but they're, what they're looking for is what are the incentives for me to join this new economy? So I think our role in accelerating this is one, trying to reach these unlocks. So UX, education, information, and um, the regulatory integration, which I think are the three main pillars to unlock all of this economy and bridge TradFi into DeFi, uh, but also have these players that have a huge client base. They have huge balance sheets with client money that they are managing. You know, if you think about this, right? Right now in the equities market, we have around a hundred trillion dollars in terms of total value. In DeFi, we use a metric called TVL, which is total value locked, which means how much money I have in deposits in DeFi. And it's around $250 billion. So it's almost four times the industry in equity that is like traditional money than what we have currently today in, in DeFi. So if I pull in 1% of the traditional finance, we, 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 we grow DeFi four times. So the possibilities of growing this industry by moving this traditional money into this new modern form of money is huge. I mean, the upside is huge. So that's why people say we're early is because there's still money that's tied up in the old forms of investment that once we start tapping in and, 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 and flowing that into this new industry, we're going to see a huge multiplier and we're going to see, as I mentioned earlier, a huge, lot, you know, a huge chunk of efficiency with that money. So there is a huge upside. Of course, everything comes with risks because most of this is new and most of this, uh, the consequences of this are unknown. But because the innovation experimentation that's going into space is so huge, I think we're going to start to see clear winners in terms of maturity, in terms of sustainability, in terms of even um, how things get um, structured for and by the regulators. So when people say, oh, there's a lot of scam, there's a lot of Ponzi scheme in the crypto space, that's because we're really early. And the more we, we out these cases, the cleaner the industry becomes. So I'm, I'm eager to see all of the scammers all at once and then clean the industry from them and really go and do these things in all seriousness that they require, which is this is a new form of financial infrastructure. Let's tackle this for what it is. Wow. Let's, let's wrap it up there, Mauricio. Uh, but I, I really appreciate your time and your insights on it. And certainly plenty to, to chew and mull over and split off into future uh, podcasts. One last question for you, completely off topic. Um, what's the, what type of music does your band play? You look like a, a, rock, a rock and roll man compared to a, a classical violinist. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm currently involved in three bands, actually. I have one band that's 25 years old. Uh, it's uh, very sober. We started off um, before I even went to college, and we're still on. Uh, this is more of a heavy prog type band. Uh, I am also part of Viejos Insanos, which is a, like a classic rock uh, type of band. So we do a bunch of covers. 
um, Bristover is all original material. Viejos Instanos is more like trying, trying to play the classics. Uh, and I recently joined another project, yet unnamed, uh, where I play drums and I also play drums and uh, we're doing more of extreme type death uh, metal, dash, uh, trash metal type thing, which is a little bit more extreme, uh, a language that I'm still uh, kind of learning musically. But yeah, uh, music is all fun and love it. I wore it away from the day job. Yeah, I mean, we'll rock and roll in in in, in crypto as well. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So thank you again for your time, Mauricio, and I'm sure we'll catch up again. And thank you, podcasters, you. for tuning in for this episode of the Equest Podcast. The Equest Podcast, funds industry conversations.